सहनावतो सहनो भनक्तो सहवीयंकरवावहै तेजस्विनावधीतमस्तुम विद्विशावहै ओम शांति 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 वी आर गोइंग टू डिस्कस द 14th चैप्टर of the Bhagavad Gita during this week. It is called Kshitra Kshitrigna Vibhaga Yoga. The subject matter of the 14th chapter is a Vibhaga, the division. No, I'm sorry, it is Gunatra Vibhaga Yoga. Division of three Gunas, Sattva, Rajas and Tamas, the three Gunas. The division of the three Gunas, the nature of the three Gunas, which form our nature. <coughs> well, the reason, as we shall see, to discuss our nature, as it was said, is made up of these three gunas or dispositions, sattva, rajas and tamas. And the reason for describing his nature is really to describe the self, which is gunatitaha, which is beyond the nature. So to know the gunatitaha, the self, that is beyond the nature, or that is transcends the nature, is the reason for discussing the nature itself. <coughs> the reason for this chapter, this discussion itself, arose on account of the discussion that took place in the previous chapter, the 13th chapter. That 13th chapter was of the nature of the analysis between the spirit and nature, Purusha and Prakriti. So each one of us is a union of these two, Purusha and Prakriti, spirit and matter or spirit and nature. <coughs> so what we perceive is what we call the nature or the material aspect of the personality. The body, the sense organs, mind, intellect, this is what we call the personality and this is what is perceptible to us. However, this personality is composed of what we call matter, the five elements, the space, air, fire, water, earth, these are said to be the five elements from which the whole universe has been created including our own personality, including our own body, sense organs, mind, intellect, this complex also is a creation of these five elements. <coughs> and these five elements are inert. And still we find, we know or we see that how this body, sense organ, this complex functions as a conscious entity, as a sentient entity. That means there is something that imparts sentiency to this body-mind complex. And that is a consciousness, that is a spirit, that is a self. Thus each one of us, what we call I, is a union of these two principles, the self and the non-self, the spirit and matter, Purusha and Prakriti, sometimes called the person and personality. If this person and personality, the self and non-self, or the spirit and matter, if they were known as they were, then there is no problem. Then there is this body, is not a problem. That we have a mind is not a problem. In fact, all of these are embellishment. What Swamiji would call all of these are luxuries. To have a body is a luxury. To have a sense, sense complex, I mean the sense organs, is a luxury. To have the mind is a luxury. All of these are given to us for certain purpose. And as long as they are utilized for that purpose, it's beautiful. 
Let us say that all of these are given to us to enjoy the life. Provided we are clear about what is the nature of the self and what is the nature of non-self, if that clarity is there, if the body is known to be the dwelling place, if the sense organs such as eyes, ears, all of these are known as instruments of knowledge, if the mind also is known as an instrument of knowing, feeling, remembering, if this is how this prakriti or the personality is known for what it is, then there is no difficulty. However, what is happening is that this prakriti or the personality or the matter or which is non-self is unfortunately taken to be the self. Thus there exists in our life what we call a viveka non-discrimination arising from ignorance. This was a discussion, this was the subject matter of discussion in the 13th chapter. There Lord Krishna said, Purushaha prakriti sthohi bhungte prakriti jan gunan karanam gunasangosya sadasad yoni janmaso. This Purusha, this person, the self, the consciousness, prakriti sthohi, who functions through the prakriti of the matter, because consciousness itself cannot be perceived, cannot function by itself, just as electricity itself cannot dispel the darkness in this hall. Electricity requires a medium of filament, then alone it can manifest itself as light and then it can dispel the darkness. Electricity itself cannot dispel darkness, nor can the filament itself dispel the darkness. What we require is the combination, the union of the two. Similarly also, the spirit or the self requires the medium of non-self, the matter, the personality, in order to function, in order to become manifest. And therefore, this universe of the creation is nothing but the manifestation of the spirit, nothing but the manifestation of consciousness or self or God, except that in order to become manifest, it requires a vehicle of what we call the matter, the names and forms, which are also called the three gunas, as we shall see, sattva, rajastamas, or the prakriti of the matter. So everywhere, that's how also Lord Krishna explained in the 13th chapter, the previous chapter, how whatever is created in the universe is created as a result of the combination or union of these two, the person and personality, purusha and prakriti. In the 13th chapter also, Lord Krishna uses words Kshetra and Kshetragnya. Kshetra means the field, Kshetragnya means the knower of the field. The field and the knower of the field, which means the same. Knower is always a conscious being and therefore the person and the personality. <coughs> it's a combination of these two. That's why Lord Shiva is portrayed as Ardhanarishwarha. As one whose half body, half body is male and other half is female. So right body of Lord Shiva is shown as male and the left body is shown as female. Of course, if you look at Dakshinamudu, you don't find that. You don't find the whole male body. But symbolically it is shown here. Although Dakshinamurti is portrayed as a male figure, but symbolically we find, the, if you observe the earrings, the right earring is the earring that a male wears and the left earring is an earring that conventionally is worn by a female. And thus by showing a female earring on the left ear of Lord Dakshinamurti, symbolically it is shown how the left side of Dakshinamurti or Shiva is feminine. 
Prakriti or the matter is usually denoted as feminine principle and Purusha, the spirit of the consciousness, is usually denoted as a male principle. In the Upanishads, sometimes we also find the beautiful description as to how the whole universe is a result of the play between the female, male and female principle between sun and moon. There is an Upanishad called Prasna Upanishad that describes creation in this way. The sun represents the male principle, represents the consciousness, the spirit. The moon represents the female principle, the matter. And how the play of the sun and the moon that brings about what we call the day and the night, brings about the season, bring about the, brings about the crop, brings about the whole life. If either of them was not there, life would not have been possible. So how this universe can be seen as a manifestation of the play between sun and moon, between the, the spirit and the matter, Kshetragya and Kshetra, Purusha and Prakriti, the person and personality. <coughs> So these two are to be found everywhere. Whatever is perceptible is going to be always a combination, a union of person and personality, spirit and matter. Wherever matter is, the spirit must be there because matter cannot exist without the spirit. Matter cannot become evident without the spirit. Matter cannot give us pleasure without the spirit. We find that the material world exists. The material world manifests itself before us. And we also see that the material world is an object of a pleasure. Even though every day we are told that it is Atma, the self, which is of the nature of happiness, that there is no happiness anywhere else is what we are told. But it is our experience that whenever we experience something that is desirable, whenever I am in company of someone who is desirable, whom I love, or whenever I experience something that I love, then I experience pleasure. And therefore, the objects and things and beings of the world appear to give me pleasure. So what is it that enables these material things give me pleasure? It is because that spirit is there. The spirit itself, which is the Satchit Ananda, existence, awareness, happiness, is where, which forms the basis, that which forms the basis of the matter. And that's the reason why the matter has the ability to give me the pleasure. Matter manifests before me. The matter exists. The fact that material world exists, the fact that it shines before me in my knowledge, and the fact that now and then it gives me happiness or it is an attractiveness, is because the Adhishthanam, the substrate of the matter, is that Purusha, the person, the Satchit Ananda. And this, that is true of everything in the world. Wherever this name and form is, wherever the material world is there, the spirit, the Satchidananda, the self, Brahman, must be there. And the same thing is true about myself also, that I am also myself a union of these two principles, the Purusha and Prakriti, the spirit and matter. What is required to be done in our life is a discrimination, a separation of these two principles, which is not happening right now. On account of ignorance, that is what we call a abhiveka, non-discrimination. That I lump these two together, that I do not know them separately as they are. And thus what is happening in our life is that this Purusha and Prakriti, the spirit and matter, the self and non-self, both of them are lumped together. And therefore, the non-self is inadvertently taken to be the self. This body, which is clearly material, non-self which just houses the spirit and still that body itself is taken to be self.
even my sense organs also are taken to be self the mind also is taken to be the self thus this non-self the prakriti the matter the personality which is in fact only a vehicle for the manifestation of the person is taken to be the self or the person thus we lump the two things together just as then imagine an iron ball and that iron is cold by any touch it is black in color however when we place that iron ball in the furnace then it gets heated up and in course of time it, it becomes red hot then we have a new entity called the fireball which is this red hot iron ball and what we call fireball is a union of these two the iron and the fire if you know the fire nature of the fire and if you know the nature of iron then we know that the red color and the heat belongs to the fire and the round form belongs to the iron if you know the nature of these two entities however if you do not know that if somebody doesn't know that that person may take this as one thing that fireball similarly also not knowing that this body this mind intellect this complex is matter and the consciousness the sentiency that this body enjoys is not because of itself the red color that the iron ball has is not because of itself the heat that the iron ball displays also is not because of itself it is because of its association with fire and also we find that the fire has a round color the fire round form the fire doesn't have a form in fact fire is formless but on account of association with iron the fire has as though become round see what happens is when this kind of an association or union takes place each one seems to assume the nature of the other this iron seems to assume the nature of fire and therefore the iron becomes red and hot even though it is cold in touch it becomes hot even though it is black in color it becomes red and thus iron seems to assume the properties of fire and the fire also in turn seems to assume the properties of iron fire doesn't have a form but then in an account of association with iron it also appears as though it has become round and therefore if someone does not know fire is fire then someone may think that the fire is round in form and if someone does not know the true nature of iron then one may conclude that iron is red in color and what it requires is what we call viveka a discrimination of our mind and this discrimination takes place in the mind the separation takes place in our mind that the round form belongs to the iron and the red color and the heat belongs to the fire so that kind of a separation viveka or discrimination takes place in our mind is similar discrimination is required with reference to our own self there is sensations in the body enjoys right now i feel as though i have a form whenever i identify myself i you know i think of myself i think of myself as a person having a form having a characteristic having certain boundaries having a certain nature but that form really belongs to the body and also the sense of limitation that i feel also doesn't belong to the self it belongs to the mind body complex i have a feeling that i am subject i am born and that i am going to die that i am a mortal being i am subject to birth and death and changes and that i am old i am young i am old all of these kind of feelings or the notions i have about myself except that the birth and death 
and old and young, all of these are really attributes to the body, not of the self. So we can see what, what a calamity happens when this discrimination is not done. Suppose taking myself to the body did not matter to me, I was quite happy with it, it's no problem, doesn't matter. So many things we do not know, so many notions we have in our life, often they don't matter to us. As I was young, as a child, I always thought that the sun rises in the morning and sun sets in the evening. This is what I thought. It's only when I went to the school after a few years that I learned the sun does not rise, sun does not set. In fact, sun does not move at all. Sun is fixed. It is earth that rotates around the sun. I always thought that the sun rotated around the earth. And then I discovered that it is earth that rotates around the sun. But that kind of a, that kind of a notion or a, or a delusion, it did not matter, it's okay. It did not matter in my life, it did not do any, I mean, it did not do any harm to me. Thus there are many things that we mistake in our life. We think the sky is blue. Only later on I found out that the sky doesn't have a color, space doesn't have a color, that blueness is an optical illusion. So there are so many illusions in our life. But very often these illusions do not matter, in which case it's okay. In fact, up to what? Up to, I think, uh, 16th century or 17th century, 17th century, the whole world thought that it, Earth is the center of the universe and the whole universe turns around the Earth. And the human being is the center and therefore the most important being, the whole universe, one, I mean, you know, centered around the human being who is the most important one. The scientists discovered that that is not so. It is not that the world rotates around the earth, it is earth that rotates around the sun, and earth is just a little planet, and human being just an insignificant creature in the whole scheme of creation. Then that human being was humbled. A sense of humility. That's okay. But even then, in, the, in fact, the astrology. The astrology also is based on th- taking the whole world or universe rotating around the earth, even today. It doesn't make much difference. The calculations don't make that much difference and therefore it's okay. As I said, thus there can be many illusions in our life. <clears throat> many things that we may not know and then formerly perhaps over the time when there was a lightning in the sky, they thought that some kind of a miracle is happening, some, some you know, uh, some chamatkar, a miracle is happening. So when this phenomena are not understood, everything is miracle. Scientists don't like this word miracle, they just don't like it. And so, they say that everything will be, exp- everything can be explained and will be explained. But until we know it, it's a miracle. <coughs> anyway, what I'm saying is there are many illusions in our life that we entertain. And those illusions very often do not count. We can merrily live our life, that is okay. Unfortunately, this illusion about myself, when I take this body-mind complex to be myself, that illusion is very important, is, 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 you know, is not something that we can ignore because it is something very relevant into our day-to-day life. Because of a day-to-day life, the way I respond, the, the goals that I entertain, the priorities that I have, the values that I have, and what I live is all based on my understanding of who I am. 
And when that understanding fundamental is wrong, then everything that I do based on understanding also is going to be wrong. Therefore, 13th chapter addresses itself to this, what we call Viveka, or discrimination between the self and the non-self. So that was the primary subject matter of the 13th chapter. In the very first word of the 13th chapter, Lord Krishna said, Idam shariram kaunteya kshetra mitya vidyate etadyovetitam prahohu kshetra gnyaha ititadvidaha. Hey Kaunte, hey Arjuna, understand that this body is Kshetra, body is an object of knowledge. Body is Drushya, something that is objectified, something that is perceived, something that is an object of knowledge. And the one who knows his body, the knower of the body is called the Kshetragnya, is called the Self. <coughs> So Lord Krishna pointed out to Arjuna, in fact there are two things involved. When you use the pronoun I, you do not realize but that in I, these two things are lumped together, the subject and the object or the self and the non-self. And that, that is how it is necessary for us to have this distinction, understand or know the distinction between the self and the non-self. Purusha prakrutistohi. This purusha or the self, when it is identified with Prakriti, identified with the personality. Bhungte, Prakriti, Jan, Gunan, then looks upon himself as a small little individual. And then entertains a sense of smallness. And then he feels, he feels a sense of fear. He feels a sense of smallness, insignificance, helplessness and fear. So all these things that we suffer from, the sense of smallness, the sense of helplessness and the fear and insecurity that it causes, all of this is on account of taking myself to be different from what I am. And what else is there in what is what else is there in our life that makes one happy? Really speaking, as Lord Krishna says, there is no reason whatever why human beings should be unhappy at all. Anybody should be unhappy. There is no reason for shoka, no reason for grief at all. But I am all the time grieving. Very rare that I am not grieving. I am always sad. Even if the sadness may not appear on my face, but I am just there, always in the background, in my mind. Swami, I don't have any sadness. Well, do you get angry sometimes? Yes, that I do. Do you feel jealous? Yes, that I do. Are you get hurt sometimes? Yes, that I do. Do you feel guilty sometimes? Yes, that I do. Well, that is all manifestation of sadness. That I feel hurt, I feel guilty, I feel jealous, I feel angry, I feel upset. I feel all of these are nothing but the manifestation of sadness. And that is what generally pervades my life. There are few moments here and there when I become free from sadness, when I just forget the sadness, not that it goes away. Sadness never goes away. It just remains in the background, waiting for it to manifest. All I, therefore, all I do is try to escape this sadness by engaging myself in some kind of distractions. And therefore, I surround myself with a variety of entertainment things so that I can forget that sadness, I can look away from it. And this, the, the profound deep sleep is an excellent experience where I become, I, I experience the freedom from that sadness. But unfortunately, when I wake up, the sadness again catches hold of me. You know, somebody asked this Ram, Ram Krishna Paramahamsa this question. 
that, uh, sir, they say that when you take a dip in the Ganges, then all your sins should be removed. That's what they say. The Ganges takes away all your sins. These fellows take dips in the Ganges every day and still you don't find any change in them. What is this? Then Ramakrishna said nicely, says, you know what? When you take, before you take a dip in the Ganges, you take out your clothes and put them on the, uh, on the, on the shore. And he takes a dip in the Ganges. When he takes a dip in the Ganges, all the sins leave him. But they all go and get stuck to his clothes. <laughs> and as soon as he wears the clothes, they all come back again. In India, you have to observe this, this buffalo. What's a buffalo? This buffalo is often bothered by flies. Hundreds of flies are there around, you know, all the time. Just uh, around its, its head. You know what this buffalo does? It just dips its head into the water. And so the flies all fly away. That's how it remains for some time. As soon as it comes up, the flies are back again. Similarly also, there is a moment of happiness that I experience when I, I turn my face away from things. So whenever I engage myself in some pleasurable activity, that sadness seems to go away. No sooner that activity is over, like flies, it comes back again. Deep sleep also is an experience like that, when we become free from all sadness. That's the reason why it's always most pleasurable experience, is the experience of sleep. Deep sleep, not just any sleep, deep sleep. But unfortunately, as soon as I wake up in the morning, all these complexes, all the sadness, everything comes back to me. <coughs> See, sadness is a fundamental human problem. It's a problem of everybody. But the human being is the only one that is capable of solving that problem and is conscious about that problem. The dogs and cats are never sad. That's a very typical problem of human being. Sadness is a problem only of human being. I don't think the dog ever feels sad. It feels helpless. It feels wretched. It feels hurt. It feels guilt. I don't think that cat ever feels a sense of guilt, even though it pounces upon a mouse and quietly has a feast of the mouth. Doesn't feel any sense of guilt. These cats, you know, sometimes when they have in India, they have this. We here also, they go into the garden. When there are squirrels, they have a nice feast of those things. You can see from the, the from mouth of this cat, there is a head, a feast of the squirrels. It comes and quietly just sits there, as though most innocent, nothing has happened. No guilt of any kind. I, on the other hand, if I, by mistake, I happen to step on a, on, a, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a worm or something, then I feel I have done something wrong. Or by sweeping the floor, if a few insects get, you know, swept away or killed, I feel bad about it. The sense of guilt is a typical thing about human being. Nobody else feels guilty. And hurt, when somebody does not treat me properly, I feel hurt, I feel insulted. All of this business of sadness, of hurt and guilt is a typical human problem. In short, human being is conscious of that problem. Everybody has that problem, but they are not conscious of it. So their ignorance is bliss. That's the reason why the whole world is in bliss. That is why in Sanskrit these animals are described as vimuktaha. Vimuktaha means always free. Free from all complexes. They don't have a complex. As Swamiji always tells us, you know, no complex. A cow doesn't have a complex. That I am a white cow or I am a black cow. Or I'm an ugly cow with unshapely horns, and that's a beautiful cow with a shapely horn. This kind of complex cows do not, do not have. Or that I don't give milk and therefore I'm useless, and this cow gives a lot of milk, so it is so nice. It doesn't have that. 
but I constantly suffer from that. I always look around myself and keep on comparing myself and always find something within myself which uh, to become unhappy about. But all this sadness, helplessness, fear, insecurity, all of this is called samsara. And if I die with this kind of feeling, I will be born again in order to become free because I am struggling constantly to become free from that sadness. If we look at the activity that we perform, anything and everything that we do is motivated primarily by the desire to become free from that sadness. And if at the end of this lifespan, lifetime I, have, I find I have not become free from sadness, I am bound to be born again to struggle again. And that is struggle for becoming free from sadness is going on from the time beginningless from birth. Karanam Gurasangose Sadasadhyoni Janmasu. Lord Krishna says, this poor jiva, this poor individual soul is born from one embodiment to the other embodiment. Why? Because of identification with this prakriti, identification with non-self. And that makes him a seeker. I become a seeker. Like the tenth one becomes a seeker. Why should the tenth one become a seeker? The ten boys are already ten. And he wants to verify whether all the ten are safe or not and therefore he asks his friend, he counts them. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, counts. Hey, there are only nine. But we were ten when we left. So this is a story that we tell in every every session. This story of tenth man must be told. Without that there is no Vedanta. <coughs> it also gives a little opportunity to tell a story. Although everybody has learned, still it always somehow seems to give me some joy. Every time I'm talking about it and people also enjoy listening to it. But then this ten boy is going for the picnic. When they cross the river and the leader want to, dis- uh, want to verify if all the ten are reached safely. And he counted them. He would be with ten and then there are only nine. So recently when I was telling this story as usual, taking it for granted, somebody asked me, Swamiji, how did they know that, that there were ten? How did they know that there were ten? You know, this is how the story begins. Once upon a time, ten boys in a village went for a picnic. <laughs> they were wandering and going along and then they came across the river. All of them knew swimming, therefore they decided to swim across the river, which they did, and reach the other bank. And the one who was the leader among them, he wanted to verify if all of them had reached safely. Therefore he asked his friends to line up. They all lined up and he counted them. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Hey, we are nine. But we were ten when we left. So the question came, how did they know that there were ten when they left? So now when we tell the story, there has to be certain modification <laughs> to account for this. So once upon, now the story begins like this. Once upon a time, these ten boys wanted to go to, for picnic in a village. So they went to their parents, seeking their permission that shall we go for a picnic, we shall return in the evening. So, okay fellows, let me see, how are you all right? Look, there are ten of you, make sure that all of you come back, say return safely, and then they appointed. Look, you are the eldest of them, okay? This is your responsibility to bring them all back safely. 
So this is this much background is told nowadays. <laughs> so the question doesn't arise. Now that fellow who is eldest among them feels sense of responsibility. That's the reason why when they cross the river and reach the other bank, then he says, wait a minute now, I must verify whether all of us are safe or not. Otherwise, why should he count? Why should he even verify? But because you assign the responsibility. And that's how he counted. He came with answer nine. And then say, hey, we were ten when we left. And that's how the tenth man is lost. And he asked his friends one by one to count. Each one of them counted. Because each one of them had studied the same school. And therefore, each one of them came with the same answer. The seven nine. And thus, there was this consensus among all of them that the tenth boy is lost. Most in interesting thing is that nobody could describe what the tenth was. If you ask them how does it look, nobody could have told. Nobody asked them also for and whatever. We never even asked that question in our life. I'm looking for something. What am I looking for? Happiness. How does it look like? And where is it? That we never stop to ask and we just keep on searching for happiness, happiness, happiness. Freedom from sadness. I keep on searching for freedom. Keep on searching for happiness. Never having inquired as to what it looks like, where is it? And thus I become a seeker of freedom because I find myself to be bound, I find myself to be sad, I find myself to be unhappy. And I have taken for granted that unhappiness is my nature, that bondage is my nature, smallness is my nature, sadness is my nature. I have taken for granted, like they took for granted that the tenth voice lost. And that is what makes me a seeker. Unfortunately, the very, the very attempt to search for the tenth man will deny them the tenth man. As long as searching for the tenth man, he can never find the tenth man. So this is another question we ask our audience. How many tenth men are there? Swamiji, one. Which one? The one who is counting is the tenth man. How are the rest of the fellows? They are all ninth men. In fact, there are ten tenth men. Each one of them is a tenth man. Otherwise, we think only one of them is tenth man. But yes, each one of them has concluded that tenth man is lost. And therefore, when they are searching for the tenth man, who are they searching for? For their own self. Most amazing thing that each one of them was searching for his own self. And thus, in our life also, we are searching for something. And if, unless that, until that search gets over, that search will go on. If the search does not get concluded in this lifetime, it will go on. Karanam guna sangosya sadasadhyoni janmasur. Birth in different kind of embodiments will go on. It has been, this process has been going on from the time beginning. But Swami, when did it begin? But before, before I started, how about that? There's another question. But Swami, right now I am like this. When did it begin? There is no beginning. Ignorance. The question is, when is it that it, Swami, or we can ask the question, when is the tenth man did not know there is tenth man? That I am not the tenth man, that ignorance. When did it begin? When it started counting? When did it begin? Ignorance has no beginning at all. And therefore, this whole process of searching for that freedom has no beginning, has been going on from time beginningless. But when will it come to an end? Only when I come to know that I am the tenth man. 
in that story also they were told when they were when they were frustrated they could not find the tenth man and then they were sitting there crying or weeping and not knowing what to do at that time an old man happened to pass by and I saw the children they were all unhappy he said what's matter children and then one of them told the story as to how one of them was lost hey, how do you determine that the tenth that one person is lost oh we counted how did you count then he demonstrated one two three four five six seven eight nine see there are only nine okay don't worry my child the tenth voice there oh is he really there yes he's there will you tell us where is i'll tell you so great shraddha the great faith arose in him the great devotion arose in him and it's all right count again now with all expectation and hope he started counting again One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and with all the expectation, he was looking at the old man. And he was so, "You are the tenth man." And then the tube light happened. <laughs> tube light. Fluorescent light is always delayed start. You switch on, but it takes time. Similarly, also, that's called the that's called the light of knowledge. That is the light of knowledge. Oh. I am the tenth. He realized what was happening that I did not take myself into account. Again, just to when I was telling the story like this, uh, once at the end of the and then there was a question and answer session. And so people, there were there were several students attending classes for quite a long time. This also was a, a middle-aged man. Uh, who was also attending the classes since last 2 3 years and one day in a question and answer session he very seriously got up and asked this question swami ji today when you told the 10th man story you said that when the 10 boys were weeping there then an old man happened to pass by and he ultimately enlightened them that they were each one of them was 10th man he was 10th man <coughs> but 6 months ago when you told them this story That time you said that a sannyasi was passing by, <laughs> and he told them. So which one is right? You know, this was his question. <laughs> his question is which one is right? So sometimes you are really surprised when they ask questions, you know, because it looks as though everybody is listening very inten- intently, very attentively. Swamiji was telling a very interesting uh, experience that he had recently. That he had gone, he was in Swamiji was invited to Germany recently, in the month of June, as a matter of fact. <clears throat> There was some kind of a seminar, seminar about consciousness, and this was in Germany. One professor had organized all this. Swamiji was one of the main speakers, and the Swamiji spoke in every session. And in the last session, then there was a conclusion. and the person would organize uh, he 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 drew the conclusion that plato also said this and this also said this and this one people essentially said tattvamasi that the non duality is what they were also teaching there were glimpses of the teaching in the other teachers also just as there in vedanta i don't think swami would have liked to quite you know accept it but anyway this is what his conclusion was then swami's another speaker got up to speak he was a professor i think of philosophy 
and working with this institute for a number of years and he was quite instrumental in organizing everything. He was sitting in the front row listening to all the talks and really enjoying the talks, laughing and you know, showing, uh, showing understanding with every sentence. Then he was invited to also speak a few words. So Swami said, oh, here is a person who has understood everything. So this person gets up and says, well, all that is said about this Vedanta and Vedas and other things, they are all speculations. The only thing, only one whose words can be trusted is of the historical one, that is Christ. He is a historical one. And that alone can be taken as pramanam or the means of knowledge. All of these are only speculations. He dismissed everything that Swami said right away in one sentence. <laughs> Swami thought he was the most sincere and understanding student. <laughs> and when he made a statement, thank God Swami didn't have a heart attack, you know. But then, <laughs> anyway, sometimes it happens when people ask you questions, you get so depressed. You have a certain pride about yourself, about your skills of communication and things like that. <laughs> and you think that you are quite adept in communicating your thoughts to the people. And at least, it, uh, at least when people are listening, it looks, I mean, from the expression of face, you see that at least there are some people who are with you. <laughs> and then when this kind of questions asked, you know, so this person seriously asked me, which one is right? Was it the old man or was it a sannyasi? <laughs> which one is right? So sometimes whenever an illustration is given, which part of illustration is to be, uh, is the important one, and which part is not is also very important because many, lots of discussion take place because of the examples that are given. An example is given to clarify certain things, but when that example is stretched beyond its limit, it can create more confusion also. <laughs> now whenever an example is given, we must know what are the boundaries of that example. And this is what Lord Krishna says on account of this aviveka, non-discrimination, or this, you know, ignorance obtaining in the, in the human being, that without, you know, it is not anybody's being, doing. Ignorance is not something that we have created. It's not our fault. As Swamiji says, there's one thing that you need not work for, and that is ignorance. One thing we need not work for. That is what we inherited. We're born with ignorance. Born with this, tendency of the nature of identifying with the personality. Born with this idea of taking the body to be myself. Born with the idea of taking myself to be a small, limited individual being. Everybody is born with that. And everybody entertains these notions about oneself, or complexes about oneself, and has a sadness, and everybody wants to become free. And Vedanta is that which provides a solution to this fundamental human problem. That is also important. What is that Vedanta gives us? That is also important. What is that Bhagavad Gita gives us? Because sometimes people ask the question before studying Bhagavad Gita, but Swami, if I attend Bhagavad Gita classes, first question is generally, how long will it take to finish this course?
Why 15 minutes? Because I have to catch a bus. So then this poor Vedanta is sandwiched, you know, between many other things and it doesn't have much priority. <coughs> so this time is very important. Whenever we announce, make announcements about Gita classes, then the first question, question they ask is, how long will it take? And sometimes people want to know, what will I get out of it? Because there are announcements that if you study this, if you are a football player, you become a better football player. If you are a businessman, you become a better businessman. And therefore, if I study Gita, can I, will I get promotion, Swamiji? Will there be improvement in my business? That could very well be. But the purpose of Gita is to address our most fundamental problem. And when that problem is solved, other things will not remain problem. Even your, that this promotion and things are so important to you, not that they are not important, but they are life and death problem right now, they will no more remain that way. When the phenomenal problem is solved, all the topical things will not matter. So Vedanta addresses the fundamental problem. And that was the, the subject matter of 13th chapter. What we call the Viveka, the discrimination between the spirit and matter, the person and personality, the self and non-self. <clears throat> and how there is an identification that the self has with the non-self. So this statement was made on account of the identification born of ignorance. On account of ignorance taking myself to be the body which I am not. And therefore suffering from all the limitations that the body causes. Identification causes. Body doesn't cause limitation. But identification body causes limitation. See body is not a problem. But identification of the body, this means taking the body to be myself, then what happens is every limitation of body becomes my limitation. The birth of the body becomes my birth and death of the body becomes my death. Then also is alright. If I got to accept death, there is no problem. But I can't accept death. I don't want to die. I hate death, Swami. I hate it. Why? There is a natural love for life, naturally. If ignorance did not bother me, then it's alright. I don't want to be branded ignorant. I don't want to be branded stupid. Never. I always want to. I want to always pose myself. I always want to be accepted as a as a as a wise person. I don't want to appear stupid. Never. Therefore, when people are talking to each other in ordinary talks, also always this is going on. Some kind of an assertion is always going on. Everybody is trying to prove he's smart, smarter than others. Why? Because there is a need on my part to believe that I am smart, that I am a wise person. I cannot accept ignorance. I cannot accept death. I cannot accept ignorance. I cannot accept pain or unhappiness. I cannot accept these things. If I could live happily with being a mortal being, Vedanta is not required. If I could be happy being unhappy, there is no problem. If I could be, that's of course contradiction anyway, if you could be happy being unhappy. Then if I could be happy if somebody insulted me and I was happy, no problem. If somebody rejected me and I was happy, no problem. If there was a threat to my life and I was happy, no problem. Suppose all of this did not make me unhappy, then we don't need anything. Unfortunately, I cannot accept those things. And that is why, of course, whatever we are doing in our life, we are doing because of that. But what we are doing is not the way to do that. The only way to solve this problem is, is this knowledge. And that is why in the 14th chapter, 
Lord Krishna further elaborates on that knowledge. What is that causes this bondage? What is the nature of the bondage? It's further analyzed here. Yeah? With the help of what we call Gunatraya, the three gunas. So the 14th chapter title is Gunatraya Vibhaga Yoga. The title is the division of the three gunas, Sattva, Rajas, Tamas, as will be explained. What are these gunas? What are their characteristics? How do they bind this human being? Or how do they bind the soul or the self? How do they become liberated? And what are the characteristics of one who is liberated from this bondage? Understand that the bondage is purely a product of ignorance. And the only way to become free from bondage is to become free from ignorance, which is the cause of the bondage. And what are the characteristics of the one who has discovered that freedom? So this also Lord Krishna does in many places, describing the characteristics of a wise person. So that we can also emulate them in our life and we can also become like him and ultimately we can also become wise. So these questions arise. In 13th chapter, Lord Krishna said, it is because of the bondage or identification with this personality made up of the three gunas that the samsara is. Therefore the question is, what are these three gunas? How do we recognize them? What kind of a bondage do they create? How do we become liberated from that bondage? And what happens after liberation? All of these questions arise and the 14th chapter is primarily to reply all those questions. So that idea is elaborated. As you know very well, the last six chapters of Gita are what they emphasize or they focus attention on the Jnanam, on the knowledge. The first six chapters of Bhagavad Gita, they primarily generally discuss what we call karma or the action. Karma Yoga. The second six chapters, all they talk about the self. First six chapters talk about subject matter is the self and karma. <laughs> the subject matter, primary subject matter of the middle six chapters is God and worship. Because whenever I think of I, I am the doer and therefore karma, the action that I perform, these are discussed in the first six chapters. God is always his object of worship and therefore God and the worship of the God is the subject matter of the middle six chapters. And the last six chapters is the relationship between the two, what we call the identity between the Jiva and Ishvara. Identity between Tat and Tvam. This famous statement, Tattvamasi, that thou art. Revealing the identity between myself and everything else. That I am not just a small individual little being, I am the self of all. So this identity forms the subject matter of the last six chapters, which begin from the 13th chapter. And therefore, the 14th chapter also is in the same line, is discussing what we call Jnanam or the knowledge. And so, recognizing that what was said in the 13th chapter would create a number of questions, the 14th chapter opens with a statement from Lord Krishna himself. In Bhagavad Gita, Several chapters start with questions of Arjuna. And the general tradition is that this discourse should be given or this teaching should be imparted only when asked for, not otherwise. Na prustaha You should not give this out to anybody unless somebody asks for it. Even if somebody asks for the knowledge, 
But if you feel that he has not been asked in a proper way, the fellow is not serious. Or he does not show enough reverence for the knowledge. He doesn't have a value for the knowledge. You feel that the question is asked without a due, due process or due reverence, then also you need not reply. Manusmuti says that this, this learned person, even though he knows, he should pose as though he doesn't know anything. Somebody asks you a question, as though you have not heard, or you don't know. If it is not asked properly. Therefore, Lord Krishna also waited for Arjuna to ask a question. And that's how the discourse of Bhagavad Gita began. Lord Krishna and Arjuna have been friends for the lifetime. They're always together. And it's not that this is the first time that Arjuna must have felt sad. He must have felt sad in the past also. It is not that Lord Krishna did not know that Arjuna needed the knowledge. He always knew. Everybody needs it. And still for all this time, Lord Krishna did not oblige Arjuna. Why is it so? Because Arjuna did not ask for the knowledge. Why did he not ask for the knowledge? Because he did not see the need of it. As one great uh, astronomer and French astronomer and mathematician Laplace, I think in the 17th century he worked out everything with mathematics and he worked out the whole model, mathematical model and, and explained how the whole world works. And also said that there are things that we do not know but in course of time we shall know everything. We can explain mathematically how the whole universe functions. He, he presented his work in three huge volumes. And that time Napoleon, you know, was the emperor of France and he approached, he, he went to Napoleon and presented his work before him. Napoleon must have been all right. Napoleon went through that, it seems, and he asked this question of Laplace. But Monsieur Laplace, I don't see any mention of God in your work. He says, we have no need for God. He says, Laplace says, we have no need for God. Because we can explain everything. And therefore, there is no need to bring in God. So, only when you have the need, then alone it becomes relevant. Similarly also, so far Arjuna never realized that he had need for knowledge. And when he doesn't have need, if you keep on giving knowledge, it doesn't, you know, it will have no effect. Only when he recognized that there was a need for knowledge, then he, he, he uh, uh, submitted himself to Lord Krishna and said, Lord, please give me this knowledge. Prachamitvam dharma sammudha chetaha. Dharma sammudha chetaha. I, whose mind is totally confused or confounded with reference to what is dharma and what is dharma, I am asking you. Yes, please tell me that which can bring about the ultimate good in my life. I am your disciple. I am surrendered to you. Please teach me. This Arjuna became a disciple. Not that the Lord Krishna would insist that you become my disciple, then only I can teach you. It's not that. That you put me on the pedestal of Guru, then only I can teach you. It's not so. But Arjuna displayed an appreciation of the value of knowledge. Arjuna displayed this understanding that knowledge is most valuable. As long as something else is valuable, Lord says, have it, I'll give you. 
In the fourth chapter, Lord Krishna says, Ye atham People approach me with all kinds of requests. And whatever they ask of me, I give them. But Lord, you know what they need. You, they may not know what they need. And therefore, they may ask you for all kinds of mundane things. Why don't you give them knowledge? Why don't you give them moksha? He says, well, they have no value for it. Even if I give them, they will have no appreciation for it. It's only when the appreciation is created, then alone is imparted. Sometimes, this has been misunderstood. They feel that these people want to keep the knowledge to themselves. They want to deprive the people with that. But it's not so. It's always given out to the one who desires it. It is for the asking, but one has to ask for it. And so, the Bhagavad, this code of Bhagavad Gita started with a request on the part of Arjuna to seek, to impart knowledge. And then we find several chapters also beginning with question of Arjuna. Arjuna asks a question, Lord Krishna replies. But then we find several chapters beginning with the statement of Lord Krishna without the question of Arjuna. How come? Because Lord Krishna recognizes that Arjuna, these questions have arisen in the mind of Arjuna. That means when we, generally speaking what happens is, when we make a statement, it explains something and raises the question. Another statement will explain that question, raise a new one. This is the way to unfold things. So when a student is listening to the teacher, his questions are being answered and new queries arise. They are being answered, new queries arise. And that's how the subject matter gets unfolded. And that is what we call, he gets an insight, he gets an understanding. So Lord Krishna recognized that based on the discourse that was given in the 13th chapter, these questions would have arisen in the mind of Arjuna. And therefore, he himself volunteers to clarify the potential questions which are arisen in the mind of Arjuna. And that's how he starts his discourse. Let us read the first verse here in the 14th chapter. This begins on the page 7 of your camp booklet. Shri Bhagavan Uvacha Shri Bhagavan Uvacha Param Bhuyaf Pravakshyami Param Bhuyaf Pravakshyami Jnana Nam Jnana Muttamam Jnana Nam Jnana Muttamam Yajnatva Munayas Sarve Yajnatva Munayas Sarve Param Siddhimito Gataha Param Siddhimito Gataha Shri Bhagavan Vacha, the Lord said, Param Bhuyaha Pravakshami, I shall speak again. Bhuyaha again, Pravakshami, I shall speak of it. What? Jnana Muttamam Param Jnanam, that exalted knowledge. Uttamam Jnanam, the best of all knowledge. Yajnatva, knowing which? Munaha survey all the munis of the contemplative sages, Param Siddhim Itogataha, have attained the highest perfection after this life. With this proposal, Lord Krishna begins the 14th chapter. We will discuss this verse and subsequent verses from the next class. Om Purnamada Purnamidam Purnat Purnamudachyade Purnasya Purnamadaya Purnameva Vashashyade Om Shanti 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 Shankaram Shankaracharyam Keshavam Vadarayanam 
सूत्रभाष्यु वंदे भगवत ईश्वरो गुरुरात्मे मूर्तिद विभागिने व्योमद्याप्तहाय दक्षिणामूर्त नम ओ शांति 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 हरि ओम श्री गुरुभ्यो नमः हरि ओम